Let's go to the <clears throat> go to the Lord again in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you that you're there, and we thank you that you're not silent. That is, you haven't just dwelt in eternity and left us to ourselves, but you have given us your word that we might know how it is you would have us to live. We live in a world of irrationality, to say the least, in open rebellion, to say the most, where people deny your word, seek to deny your existence, want to be their own God, and little do they know that unless you have mercy upon them, they will spend eternity in a flame of fire, crying out, not only in agony, but it appears from thy scriptures that in eternity they will continue to blaspheme your holy name. Thank you for delivering us from your wrath. Thank you for blessing us to have some semblance of understanding thy great salvation. In comparison to the richness and the fullness and the majesty of your great salvation to that of which we understand, the gap is exceeding great. And nevertheless, we thank you for what little we do seemingly understand. And there are times, our God, and we thank you for that, that you flood our souls and bless our cups to overflow in great joy and appreciation of your salvation. So often we go about our lives in a daily fashion While we may think of your of you and your grace and your mercy, sometimes it seems as if we do that by rote. We don't want to do that. We want it to be more vital. But if you were to give us what we think we would desire, being the sinners that we are and enhoused in this sinful body, there's no way that we could take it all in. We're reminded of old John Warburton many years ago when he was in his dying hours had to sleep sitting up in a chair and his testimony was that there were times that you would visit him with such fullness that he would have to beg you to withdraw your presence because he couldn't take in anymore. Seems strange to us or at least to me. I do not doubt 
Brother Warburton's experience and his uh, fellowship in times with you. May we be blessed to draw nigh to you and love you more and more as we live out our lives each day and the path grow brighter and brighter. Now bless us as we continue studying your word. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. We're still in Galatians chapter 4 and as uh, you remember last Lord's Day, we uh, took up most of the day. Uh, actually, we're in more in verse 5 and 6, but last Lord's Day, we spent uh, pretty much the whole day on uh, the subject of adoption. And as I said then, uh, I did something I had never done before in reading uh my sermon on that essentially but uh, I had said it the way that I wanted to say it and I couldn't say it any better so I couldn't figure out any better way to do it than the way that I did but notice he says that not only had he redeemed us verse 5 that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Crying, Abba, Father. You know, it's just natural for a child to call their parent mama or daddy or father, mother or something of that nature. It's just... Uh, you don't think anything about it. it. It just comes, like I said, it comes naturally. And what a great blessing that it is that we can go to God and it just comes naturally in a spiritual way, but it, that we just call Him Father. You know, it's, just, it's a term of endearment and it's a term of endearment that uh, the Jews hardly knew anything about. They knew about Jehovah. They knew about the great I Am. They knew about Adonai and, and things of that nature. But to call God their Father, even when Jesus said that God was His Father, uh, the Jews had trouble with that because He was making Himself equal with God. And I don't want to get off into all of that, but uh, we're not uh, making ourselves equal with God by calling Him our Father, but we are expressing that we have His Spirit in us. In other words, there is a sense of the nature of divinity and I say that very, very carefully. Uh, maybe I should say a sense that we have the Spirit of the Divine abiding in us. We're not God. We don't have the same deity and divinity that God has, but we still are partakers of the divine nature as the Scripture tells us. And it says, because we are sons, God sent the Spirit into our hearts. And now note, it is not that the Spirit was sent into our hearts and that we were made sons. That's what is normally taught throughout the religious world, even among so-called reform and or grace believers. And that's the reason I spent so much time and tried to point out so carefully last Lord's Day how that adoption does not take place at faith. Adoption is not another part of uh, justification. 
Adoption and justification are two different things. And that adoption uh, takes took place in eternity. That uh, we were predestinated unto the adoption of children. And just as we were elected in eternity, when God predestinated us unto adoption, that's when our adoption began. But as we pointed out last Lord's Day by quoting uh, Turretin and A.A. A. Hodge and R.L. Dabney and John Owen and John Dick and others, uh, they all tried to make uh, adoption at faith. And you find that uh, so prevalent uh, throughout uh, today when people preach on adoption. A lot of people don't even preach on adoption anyway. But notice it says, because you are sons, not in order to make you a son. Now, I didn't say too much. I said somewhat about this last Lord's Day. The sonship that is talking about with regard to adoption is the Greek word uh, Theseus, or Thesia. There is a, another word for uh, son, and I just went blank on that, but uh, when it talks about us being made a son in regeneration, that is different from sonship of adoption. And too often people intermingle the two. It is one thing to be given life to become a son. It is another thing to be adopted to be a son. And as we pointed out last Lord's Day, when, uh, when, when adoption takes place, it does not change the person's nature. It only changes the person's state or his legal status. I, as an Anglo-Saxon, most likely more of Welsh descent than and English descent, uh, according to my genealogy, as much as I can figure it out, I could adopt a Chinese, but I could not make that Chinese an Anglo-Saxon. I could not make the Chinese, a Welch, or an English individual. I would only change their legal status. I would not change their nature. And the thing, the beauty part about this is, after we are adopted and become sons, then God gives us the spirit of His Son and changes our nature. So we are really a son by two different uh, methods. If you let me put it that way. We, are, we become a son in adoption by changing our, our relation, our legal status. But in regeneration we become engendered by God and given divine life. And that's what he's saying here. Because you are sons. Not to be made a son. Legally. Because you are son. He has given you the spirit of his son. Whereby we cry Abba Father. The spirit is given to us in regeneration. We won't take the time to... Uh, preach a, a whole message on regeneration, but look in John 3. We'll look at a couple of verses with regard to regeneration. 
well-known and familiar passage when Nicodemus was speaking to Jesus. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's not two different things. That's, uh, we would say it in our modern English, water even the Spirit. In other words, the water is a symbol of the Spirit. It's not talking about re baptism. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. When we are regenerated, that's when we receive the Spirit of adoption. That's when our hearts are tendered toward God. And that's when we begin to cry out unto Him and recognizing Him not only as our God, but recognizing Him as our Father. Our Father. Look again in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Pick up in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit itself, or Himself, beareth witness with our spirit, our spirit that we are the children of God. And then drop on down for time's sake. Notice how the Spirit helps us in our Christian endeavors, taken up in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Are you an infirmed individual? Do you have infirmities? Well, certainly you do. But the Spirit helps your infirmities. There may be many times you're not even aware that the Spirit is helping you and giving you nourishment and strength to continue on. When you're about ready to give up and throw up your hands and think that you're, you've just blown it, the only reason you don't turn away is because the Spirit is still helping your infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been before the Lord and uh, your, your soul is in agony? And you're trying to get direction or understanding or some uh, semblance of what it is that the Lord would have you to do and you just throw up your hands and say, Lord, I, I really don't even know what to pray for. I don't even know how to ask what I, what I think I want. And even when I think I want this, I don't know whether I'm wanting it for myself or for your glory. And I don't know whether I'm being selfish or not. But the Spirit helps your infirmities. 
And like I said, you, you most likely when the Spirit is helping your infirmities, you don't feel any surge of electricity or some power or some wind blowing on you. It's at a much deeper level. It's because you were adopted that God gives you this Spirit. But the Spirit itself or Himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now oftentimes we think about that as us groaning. And we do groan. But it says the Spirit groans. You say, well, explain that to me. I can't. This much I do know. The Spirit helping you is not some, well, I don't know how to express it any other way. Uh, it's not some unemotional intercession on the part of the Spirit. In other words, it's not like a a mediator that may be negotiating between uh, a company and a group of employees. This mediator uses one is kindly trying to be neutral and look at it from both sides of the of the of the spectrum, so to speak, and trying to weigh out. Uh, uh, the 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 employer side and weigh out the employee side and have them to come together at some kind of a resolution where everybody is happy and things of that nature. This is not the way our mediator is. He groans. That's what it says here. The Spirit Himself maketh intercessions for us which with groanings, with groanings which cannot be uttered. I can't explain that. But I can say that the Spirit is not indifferent when He takes our petitions up before the Father. You may think God doesn't hear. You may think heaven is brass. But because your sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart and you cry unto Him, Father. But notice this. When He makes intercessions, it's according to the will of God. Our prayers are not always according to the will of God. But the Spirit's intercession is always according to the will of God. Isn't it great to know that you have a mediator that takes your sloppy requests, mixed up requests, maybe Requests that are not according to the will of God and He cleans them up to make intercessions for you in a way that is beneficial. Wouldn't you like to be sitting in a corner somewhere, so to speak, listening in on the conversation of the Holy Spirit interceding for you before the Heavenly Father. Oh, that God would pull the curtains and bless us to get a glimpse. Yes, verse 27, And he that searcheth the heart Knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, 
because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He maketh intercession according to the will of God. Christ is interceding. The Holy Spirit is involved. I tell you, the divine trinity is all active in our prayers and prayings. And if we could just lay hold on that uh, halfway as we ought, I believe that it would uh, increase our prayer life in a way that we can hardly know what it is. Crying, Abba, Father. Abba is supposed to be kind of like our uh, English Papa. In other words, uh, usually a child can say Papa or Mama uh, easier than they can say anything else. The very heart groanings of a child, the very infant crying of a child that we have. What a blessing to have this and to know that we are included in the salvation of God. Roman Catholic theology and sad to say many other people likewise uh, teach that no one can know whether he's saved or not. I remember in our own denomination when I was young in the ministry, there was a great controversy that went on of saying that you couldn't know that you're saved and this, that, and the other. Well, if a person just reads First John, he'll find out that a child of God can know whether he's saved or not. Now, can he know beyond a shadow of a doubt? No, because we're sinners, we still doubt sometimes our salvation. But the point is that having the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the understanding of the Word of God, we can know that we are saved. According to uh, the Catholic theology, salvation is because of one's obedience to the commandments of God and to the laws and ordinances of their religion their of their of their religion in other words they have to keep all of the the appendices and they have to go through all of their rites and all of their holy days and things of that nature but assurance of salvation is never found in the obedience of any kind. Let me say that again. The assurance of salvation is not found in one's obedience to anything. The assurance of salvation is found in Christ. It's found in Christ. It's not found in your prayer life. It's not found in your repentance, nor penance. Penance is not repentance, by the way, but I don't want to get off into that. It's not found in going to religious services on pagan holidays such as Easter and Christmas. It's not found on... Your assurance of salvation is not found on those things. Your assurance of salvation is found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther went through this. Martin Luther, when he was struggling, and for that reason I'm going to read some things from Luther. One is here, after devoting several pages, showing that we are not to look to our works and achievements for assurance of our salvation as taught by the Catholics, particularly in his time, Luther said this, Here is it not time that thou turn away thine eyes from the law, from works, 
and from the sense and feeling of thine own conscience and lay hold by faith of the promise, that is to say, of the word of grace and life which raises up the conscience again so that now in, uh, so that now it beginneth to groan and say, Although the law accuse me, sin and death terrify me never so much, yet thou, O God, promiseth grace, righteousness, and everlasting life through Jesus Christ. And so the promise bringeth a sighing, a groaning, a crying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And since the Spirit of God has come into our hearts, as he says, and, and in this spirit of adoption, he says in verse uh, 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then heir of God through Christ. Since we are changed by the Holy Spirit in regeneration and kept by the Spirit of God in the doctrine and knowledge of the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith, we are to put our trust and our assurance in that. We are to put our trust and our assurance in the finished work of Christ. Not in your church going, not in your religious activities, not in your prayers, not in your Bible reading, not in keeping any holidays. <coughs> the assurance of our salvation is in Christ. Is in Christ. There's a song that we sing from time to time. Uh, I can never find it usually. <laughs> but it has the statement in it. You want proof of this, my love? In other words, God is saying to the child of grace, You want proof of this, my love? Look to Calvary. Look to Calvary. And Christ above. We are no longer in bondage under the elements. Notice in verse 3 of chapter 4. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Verse 9, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Paul was teaching these Gentiles, that they did not have to go and be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. In other words, not only the law of Moses, but any law. It is Christ that justifies. It is not the works of man. It is not the works of man. To do so is to be in bondage. Let me ask you something. How much good works do you have to do in order to be saved? Well, let me put it this way. How much good works do you need to do in order to have assurance of salvation? How many hours of Bible reading would it take? How many hours of prayer would it take How many religious holidays and sacraments would you have to obey in order to be saved or have the assurance of salvation? How many Lord's Supper would it need you would you need to attend? What kind of baptism would you need to have the assurance of salvation? You see Trying to figure all of that out puts you in bondage. 
trying to figure out this, trying to figure out that. If I just do what this preacher says, if I do what this pastor tells me, uh, if I do this, if I do that, no assurance of salvation comes in Christ. Not in anything, not in anything you do. And people that try to get assurance by doing things are only putting themselves more and more in bondage. They're enslaved to it. You know, there's a common doc doctrine that's called the covenant of works that says that God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden and if he obeyed the uh, kept the covenant long enough, he would be saved and get eternal life. Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't say that. That's assumed. And secondly, if it were so, God never told Adam how long he had to keep the, the uh, keep the uh, how long he had to obey in order to get eternal life. He didn't tell him how long. If you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, how much of the law is required? All of it. All of it. And you can't go back and read through the book of Leviticus, let alone Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You can't read through the book of Leviticus and know how to keep everything perfectly. I mean, just, just think about it. Think about it. Think about everyday life. Think about everyday life. If you touch a dead animal, you're unclean. Therefore, if you killed a fly and stepped on a roach, you better make sure you got your shoes on or you're unclean. Man and woman in their conjugal relationship are continually being unclean. I mean, just think about having to keep the law perfectly and not become unclean at any one time. It's ridiculous. And if you're going to try to keep some laws, you have to keep all of them, not just part of them. No wonder Martin Luther went through so much bondage. He kept repenting, uh, kept going to the priest and going to the priest and confessing his sins. And after he got through confessing some of his sins, he realized there's other sins he hadn't confessed and he turned back around and one of the priests told him that he was coming to the priest too much to ask for forgiveness. He was in bondage. He was in bondage. We're no longer in bondage under the elements of the law. We do not look to law or keeping of the law or obedience to commandments of men or to the philosophies of vain deceits and tradition of men after the rudiments of the world. Look in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. First of all, in verse 8, Paul writes to the Colossians, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the rudiments of men, excuse me, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And then dropping down to verse 16, 
Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of holy day. In other words, it's not because you eat certain meats or don't eat certain, certain meats. That doesn't make you any better. That doesn't make you unclean. Or if you don't eat certain meats, it makes you cleaner. See, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. And by the way, let me say this while we're talking about this. These verses not, are not talking about uh, the pagan holiday of uh, Saturnalia and Ashtar. You say, what do you mean Saturnalia and Ashtar? Well, those were Greek and Roman gods for uh, Christmas and Easter. You say, well, why are you talking about that? Who knows that? Well, just look it up on Google. <laughs> Google it. You'll say, Google, what's Easter all about? What's Christmas all about? How did it get here? You'll see that uh, Catholicism took over pagan holidays and tried to Christianize them in order to get more people into their congregations. I'm not being mean. That's just, that, I mean, that's just history. The sad part about it, people don't know their history. But anyway, <clears throat> because these meats and drinks and holy days and new moons and Sabbaths, verse 17, which are a shadow of the things to come. That's talking about those things that were under the Old Testament law. But the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your, your, of your reward in a voluntary humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Nobody's seen, we, we haven't seen an angel. I haven't seen one, have you? You say, well, angels appeared to people in the Bible. Yes, they did. You say, well, an angel may appear today. Well, he may appear, but I haven't seen one. But even if I do, I'm not to worship the angel. I'm not to bow down to it. See, seeing an angel would not bring me closer to God. You said, well, if I saw an angel, I'd, I'd get closer to God. No, you wouldn't. The only way you get closer to God is God working in you and drawing you into him, unto Himself. Balaam's donkey saw an angel. It didn't draw him closer to God, did it? The angel stood in the way of Balaam and his donkey. So seeing an angel is not going to get you closer to God. See, your salvation is in Christ. It's not in things. Things which he has seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. That's the end of verse 18. And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministereth and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things indeed 
which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility. Oh, it looks like somebody that does a lot of these things. They got a lot of wisdom. They have a lot of humility. But they're neglecting of the body and not honoring and not honoring to God. You know, television programs and movies and all such as that try to make the Star Wars creatures or the Eastern Oriental uh, mystics to be somewhat more spiritual than a Christian. Well, they're not more spiritual. They're not more spiritual. Oh, they may be more spiritual in one sense, but not in, not in a Christian sense. Not in a good sense. Being a son of God, we look to Christ and Christ alone for our salvation and assurance. While obedience to the commandments of God is good, it does not justify and we must never look to such duties. Obedience accomplishments, and so on. It's good to pray, but to equate your salvation with reference to your prayer life is nothing but the work of law or legalism. Colossians 2.10 says you're complete in Christ, not in your praying, not in your law works, I want to read another somewhat lengthy quote from Martin Luther. Wherefore, the adoption bringeth with it the eternal kingdom and all the heavenly inheritance. Now, how inestimable the glory of this gift is. Man's heart is not able in this life to conceive and much less to utter. In other words, he's saying that this great, great glory of salvation is so inestimable. In it, <laughs> you can't estimate it, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say. That man's heart is not able to conceive how great it is nor can we talk about how great it is. Going on, quoting Luther, In the meantime we see this, but darkly, and as it were afar off. We have this little groaning and feeble faith, which only resteth upon the hearing and the sound of the voice of Christ in giving the promise. In respect to our sense and feeling, Therefore, this thing is exceeding small. But in itself, that is, salvation in itself, is very great and infinite. So that, so that a Christian hath in him a thing which is infinite, although in his own sight and feeling it is very little and limited. In other words, the salvation we have is great. But it seems so small to us. Therefore we must not measure this thing by reason. Or by our own feeling. But by that which is far other. To wit. The promise of God. Now because he is infinite. Therefore his promise is also infinite. Although it seems to be never so much enclosed in these narrow straits, these anguishes, I mean, and in the compass, so to speak, of the word. Wherefore, there is nothing that can be, that can now accuse, terrify, or blind the conscience anymore. 
For there is no more servitude but adoption, which not only bringeth unto us liberty from the law, sin, and death, but also the inheritance of everlasting life as follows. I thought that was a good quote by Luther. Even though he too made adoption to be at faith and not in eternity. But anyway, hopefully that will give you some insight on what what you presently have. But if you get nothing else other than the fact that you don't look to any of your works, but you look to Christ, out of what we've said this morning, that, that'll be sufficient. That'll be sufficient. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the salvation that is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing this, the least I can speak for myself, knowing this, I still struggle. Think that I need to do more praying, I need to do more this, that, or the other. And, no doubt, rightly so. but not in order to gain assurance or salvation. Help us to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff and to rest in nothing but the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.